0: After you place your marker there, take your Bibles out and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, that will be our first reading this morning. Certainly good to see everyone here. Our numbers are a little lighter due to illness or travel or new additions to the family, but we are grateful that you're here. Hope that you'll take your Bibles out and let's follow along together as we study another lesson from God's Word. This morning... The lesson is entitled, Can We Trust Our Bibles? When we think about God's word, when we think about what we have, the 66 books that we often study, can we really trust that this is God's word? Is the Bible really the word of God? How do we know for certain? Can we have absolute assurance that what we have are the words of God? That he has preserved what he wants us to know. How do we know we haven't lost things? How do we know that there haven't been things that have been omitted by man that change what the, God, what the Bible tells us? So this morning, that's what we want to consider. Can we trust our Bibles? What you'll see is that this is a common question both from Christians and non-Christians. Christians oftentimes ask, can we trust our Bibles? Can we really trust that we have God's Word? Non-Christians will ask the same question. How do you know that the Bible is true? Non-Christians will often claim that the Bible can't be trusted. One of the reasons why people say they don't believe in God or they don't believe in God's Word is because how can we know it can be trusted? Two prominent denominations that really attack the Bible are both the Mormons and Muslims. Both groups will claim that over time the Bible has become so corrupted that what we have is not God's word. That's why they say Joseph Smith made the statement that we needed something else. Of course, with Mormons, it's the Book of Mormon. He said that, well, the Bible that you read, the English Bible, is so corrupt. It's so beyond what God wants. Here's a second revelation that clarifies what God wants. Muslims will say that the Bible has become so corrupt that it can no longer be trusted. That's why the Quran or the Koran, that is the true word of God. So non-Christians will say that you can't trust the Bible. What you have is not God's word. So let's consider that this morning. Is the Bible really God's word? There are two things I want us to consider when we think about this. First off, the Bible claims to be God's word. Why do we believe that the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible claims to be God's word. Look here in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. Let's actually start in verse 16. Peter says we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, we've made the point many times that Peter is writing this second epistle to encourage people not to turn back. Just as Hebrews is written to the Jews not to turn back to the old law, 2 Peter is written not to turn aside to false doctrines. Don't go back to the life that you used to live just because of persecutions. Stay the course. Peter is trying to convince the people what we are testifying to what we are teaching and preaching we were eyewitnesses and think of all the things that peter saw during his time with the lord and the one thing that he references is the transfiguration on the mountain peter says we saw the glory of god we saw jesus transformed, and that was proof to him that what he was teaching and what he was preaching is truth pick up in verse 19 Peter is saying that his writings, James' writings, John's writings, Paul's writing, all the writing of the apostles, and all the writing of the men that God chose to write, think about Mark, think about Luke, think about Jude, all of these books, they were written through the movement of the Holy Spirit. Scripture came from God. The Bible says, why do we believe this is the word of God? Because Peter says it was, and God confirmed it by his power. The Bible is God's word. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says about the Thessalonians. And they're hearing of God's word and they're believing of it. In chapter two, verse 13, he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Once again, Paul is reiterating this point. What he is teaching, what he is preaching, it didn't come from men. Men did not make up what he's writing, what he taught. It's from God. It is the word of God. Now, I find it kind of interesting that Paul is saying this to the Thessalonians. Because you remember in Acts chapter 17, that's where Paul goes, first goes to Thessalonica. That's when he preaches the word. And because of persecution, he has to escape. And then he goes to another place and preaches the gospel. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. As we said, the beginning of the chapter, Paul is preaching in Thessalonica. He has to leave because of persecution. And then we drop down a few chapters, or a few verses rather, and verse 11, he goes to another city named Berea. And notice what it says about the Bereans. He says, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. I just find that interesting because in 1 Thessalonians, did you notice Paul is commending the Thessalonians for believing the word of God? Well, here in verse 11 of Acts chapter 17, he says, The Bereans were more fair-minded in that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Do you see a pattern here, brethren? Peter says scripture comes from God. It's the prophetic word that's confirmed. Paul says he taught in Thessalonica, in Corinth, in Philippi, in all the churches of Galatia. He taught the same thing, remember? Paul says they received it not as words of men, but as in truth, the word of God. In Acts chapter 17, it talks about the Bereans. When they heard Paul teaching and preaching, did they just accept it? Did they just say, you know, Paul, you're a good speaker. We believe what you're saying. What did they do? They searched the scriptures. They tested what Paul had to say. Why do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? Because it claims to be. It claims to be inspired. It claims to be from God. We have to have faith and we have to believe that. Go over to John chapter 12. John chapter twelve and notice in verse starting in verse forty nine or forty seven rather. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day for I have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak once again do you see the pattern up here everything that we have is from God Peter says it's the prophetic word from God Paul says it's the word of God here Jesus says the words that he speaks where are they from they're from God why do we believe that the Bible is God's Word? Because it claims to be God's Word. Let's look at a few more things. We go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 35, notice what Jesus says about His words and about the words of God. In chapter 24 and verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away God's words are eternal God's words will never go away Peter says something very similar in 1st Peter chapter 2 I'm sorry 1st Peter chapter 1 in verse 24 Peter says all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass the grass withers and its flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever now notice the end of that verse Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Once again, God's words are everlasting. Man, for years, for centuries, for millennia, have tried to get rid of God's word. They have tried to destroy it, they have tried to outlaw it, to ban it. But God's words will never perish. God's word is perfect. In Psalm chapter 19, a very familiar psalm. Luke, I'm sorry when you're asking for songs, this would have been a good song to lead, right? Psalm chapter 19, in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is is sure, making wise the simple. The psalmist continues on and talks about some attributes about God's word. Talks about how important, how valuable it should be to us. More to be desired than than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. That's what God's word should be to us. But the idea that God's word is perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. The idea of Perfection. Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. God's Word is perfect. Of course, we have to talk about 2 Timothy chapter 3, right? You can't talk about the Bible and not talk about 2 Timothy chapter 3. For good reason, too. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I know I've said it many times and I know you've heard it many times. That word inspired literally means God breathed. This is from the very mouth of God. So once again, why do we believe that the Bible is God's word? Because it claims to be God's word. All scriptures give given by inspiration. It claims that it came from God. Jesus taught from, he didn't teach of his own authority. He spoke the words of God. Paul, Peter, the apostles, they didn't speak what they wanted to speak. They spoke the words of God. One more passage. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. You'll remember here that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's talking and promising them that after he is gone, God is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And in verse 13, Jesus says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So put all this together now. The apostles spoke the words of God. The men who wrote the Bible, who weren't necessarily apostles, they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God. Jesus spoke the words of God. The Holy Spirit spoke the words of God. Why do I believe the Bible is God's word? Because it claims to be God's word. Now you look at that and you say, okay, well that's fine, but what if someone doesn't believe in God? How can we use the Bible to prove itself? Isn't that what we call circular reasoning? You can't prove something with something, so... so That's fine and great for Christians who have an understanding of God, have an understanding that, yes, the Bible is inspired. But what other evidence do we have? Is this the only evidence that God has given us that the Bible, what we have today, is his words? Is that the only evidence that we have? How do we prove? How do we know? How can we trust that the Bible is God's word? Well, yes, we can talk about how the Bible claims to be God's word. But if someone doesn't believe the Bible in the first place, what good is that going to do? I remember a couple of weeks ago I was having a conversation with the kids. And I asked them, how do we know something is true? You know, how do we know that there's a God? Ask them, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? And one of them, and I'm not going to say who, so I don't have tears or, or looks. One of them just said, well, that's, that's where faith comes in and while that's true yes faith is an important aspect of our lives with god god doesn't expect us to accept things through blind faith in fact i would suggest to you this morning that there is nothing that god has asked us to believe that he just said you just have to accept this because i said it god has always given us evidence do you remember the definition of faith in hebrews 11 verse 1 Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yes, there are things that we do accept on faith, but it's not blind faith. There's evidence. There is proof. So the Bible claims to be God's word. Let me give you the second point. The Bible seems to be God's word. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say the Bible seems to be God's word? No other book ever written can make the same claims that the Bible does. No other book. Think of the greatest works, literary works of all time. What are some of your favorite books? They cannot make the same claim as the Bible. Let me go further. Most scholars will agree that the Bible was written over a period of around 1,500 years. You know, plus or minus about 20, depending on who you read. Roughly about 1,500 years. The Bible was written by 40-ish people. It really depends on how many people you think wrote, uh, contributed to like the book of Proverbs, book of Psalms. Between 35 and 40 is the accepted number. What other book, even if it only had one author, what other book can claim the continuity of the Bible? Do you realize that from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation... The Bible has one continuous message. What other book can make that claim? What other book can make the claim that it needed no additions, no addendums, no, no other anything added to it? Everybody I believe here knows that I love to read books like Lord of the Rings. That's one of my favorite books to read. J.R.R. Tolkien and his ability to craft a world. If you've never read about about him, he's a fascinating man. He was so intelligent that he was able to come up with his own languages. If that tells you anything about what kind of smarts this man had, he was a very intelligent man. Yet as he was writing his books, time and time again he had to start over. Why? Why? because he had a new idea. Oh, this is a great idea. Okay, but if I do this, this is gonna change the continuity over here, so we gotta go back. You know, we call that a retcon, right? We gotta go back and we gotta fix this because it doesn't make sense now. The Bible didn't have that problem. The Bible doesn't have that problem of, okay, well, this verse contradicts this verse. Or what Jesus says here, well, that doesn't match up what we read in the book of Genesis. We don't have that problem with the Bible. What other book can make that claim? What other book can claim that it needed no rewrites, needed no addendums, needed no appendixes to help people understand it? The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one continuous story. That's amazing, is it not? 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and yet it all talks about the same thing how else other than the power of god could that be well we've talked about this before but let's talk about it again do we understand how amazing it is when you read and you study about how we got the bible i don't think that that would necessarily make a good sermon it might make a good bible class one day but how we got the bible there are more copies of the bible than there are of any other ancient text no other ancient book can make that claim the bible has more copies than anything else more than the odyssey and the iliad more than the annals of rome from tacitus more than any other book There are more copies of the Bible. Let me give you some numbers. There are roughly 5,800 complete or near complete manuscripts. And this is just talking about the New Testament. 5,800 complete or near complete copies, manuscripts. There are over 13,000 fragments. So on top of the 5,800 complete or near complete manuscript, 13,000 fragments meaning small snippets that have survived over time. 13,000 of these exist today. Over 10,000 Latin translations of the Greek have been preserved. 8,000 manuscripts written in multitudes of languages you have Syrian Armenian Ethiopic Coptic Gothic Slavic Sahedic and Georgian now if you have no clue what Coptic and Sahedic meant I had to look it up too. Egyptian that's the Egyptian language so think about all these different areas all these areas around the Mediterranean all these different languages 5,800 manuscripts, 13,000 fragments, translations, manuscripts in all of these different languages. Also found in different places. Fragments and manuscripts have been found in Egypt, Ethiopia, Palestine, Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Once again, all over the Mediterranean area. This is where copies, that's where these manuscripts... Have been found. Well, some of the fragments date to around forty to a hundred years after Christ was on the earth. Isn't that amazing? You know, it'd be something if someone said, "Well, your your earliest manuscript. You know, yes, you have fifty-eight hundred of them, uh, but they date you know a thousand years after Christ was on the earth. How tr- how sure can you be?" That that's what God really wants you to know. We have some that date just within a generation of when Christ was on the earth. The majority of the manuscripts date around 400 to 500 years after. So what does all this tell us? Can we trust our Bibles? A skeptic would say, you don't have the originals. There you do not have a single original manuscript. Okay. But we have manuscripts that were written within a generation of the original. We have fragments that date just not long after the originals were written. And from that, guess what we can do? We can start piecing it together. We can start comparing the different versions that we have. We have a Syriac And then we also have a Coptic. Well, let's compare them. Let's see how much variation there is between the two. Let's take these Latin, and let's compare that, and let's see how much variation between what we have today and what originally was written. When we make that comparison, when everything is taken into account, There is less than half a percent of variation between what we have in our Bibles and what the manuscripts, fragments, and translations say. Less than half a percent. Once again, how could that be? How could that be if this was just mere men speaking? Have you ever played the game where you get a bunch of people in a line and you start in one end and you tell the first person, you whisper something in their ear, something very simple, it could be silly, whatever it is, and then they're supposed to turn to the person to their side and they're supposed to whisper what they thought they heard. And you keep going and even in a group as small as let's say 10 people, that's not many. The amount of variation, it's it's really funny sometimes because what was originally said versus what the last person heard, it can be completely different. You can't get 10 people to agree this is what was originally said. Why is that? Because that's a human brain for you. What we hear doesn't necessarily translate to what we say. You ever had that problem? Well, this is what I heard you say. That's not what I said. You ever had that problem? Of course we have. How can 40-plus authors over 1,500 years, how can they do this? Be it not for the power of God. You think about Paul when he wrote to the Galatians. Do you remember one of the things that Paul used to prove that he was an apostle? He said, when I was first converted... He didn't go consult with Peter, or James, or John. I think James would have been dead. This, but he didn't go and converse with the other apostles. No, he went to the desert for three and a half years because he was taught by Jesus. Do you remember when he finally did go to Jerusalem and he finally did sit down with Peter and the other apostles? Their message was the same. They didn't have any differences. There's no Pauline gospel and a Peter gospel. There's God's gospel. Well, how can that be? Because it's the power of God. Less than half a percent of textual variances. And when we talk about textual variances, people say, well, okay, variances. See, there's there's problems. There's not a problem. Because when we're talking about textual variances, we're talking about things such as a misspelling of a word. Or they capitalized a word here where in one, of the, in one of the manuscripts, it's not capitalized. Scholars have studied these variants. Scholars have studied these differences. And anywhere there is a change, anywhere there is a difference between one manuscript and another... There's doesn't change the meaning of the text. The message stays the same. Yet even in the face of such evidence. Even when you present to somebody and say look at how much evidence we have. People still are unconvinced. Unconvinced. And I think it's easy for us to get frustrated because I think we get it, or I hope that we get it. The evidence is there, how can you not see this? Should it really surprise us that much? You think about today in our modern judicial system, think about some of the big trials over the past couple of years. In my lifetime, I think the one that everybody, I always think about is the case against Casey Anthony. I don't know if you remember that trial, this is the one where her daughter was found, murdered, And there was this big trial down in Florida. And everybody knew that she did it. I mean, the evidence was clear, was it not? Everybody knew that she was guilty. She had searches of how to do it. She had searches of how to hide bodies. She had all the opportunity. And she was the only one who had access and motive. Obviously, she did it. You know what the verdict was, don't you? Not guilty. Well, how can people look at the evidence? Because people are going to see what they want, what they want to see. The trial of the century. Do you remember what trial that was? O.J. Simpson. Do you remember what such a big spectacle it was? I know you younger kids have no clue. We remember O.J. Simpson trial, do we not? I mean, it was huge. He murdered his girlfriend or his ex-wife and his boyfriend and her boyfriend. I'll get it right in a second. You know, obviously O.J. did it. Once again, the evidence was clear. The motive was clear. Do you remember the, the scenes, him fleeing in the white Bronco? I mean, does an innocent person run? You know, Obviously, OJ did it. Who was it, Johnny Cochran? If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Not guilty. A couple of years ago, do you remember he wrote a book titled, If I Did It? It never saw publishing because people were so outraged over it. But in that book, he all but admit that he did it. But yet 12 people on a jury said, not guilty. People can have evidence, be presented clear evidence, be shown all the different reasons, and yet still come away, I just don't accept that. I don't accept all that evidence. Yeah, I get what you say. The Bible claims to be God's word. Yes, I get that we have all of these ancient manuscripts, all of these things. But I still don't believe that the Bible is God's word. Because what people will often point to, what about all the errors in the Bible? You know, you claim that the Bible is infallible, meaning it can't have errors. It can't have anything that that goes against another passage, you can't have inconsistencies. But the Bible is full of errors. How do you prove that? How can you say that the Bible is God's infallible word when there are so many errors in the Bible? Well, don't worry if you're looking at your watch. This is part two. So in our second lesson this morning, let's consider the errors in the Bible. And how we would answer those questions. When I look at the evidence, brethren, I'm amazed at God's word. And I hope you are as well. I hope you see the evidence. You see what we talked about today. Most importantly, I hope you don't take my word for it. Go and do your own research. Go and do your own searching and and think about all of these different manuscripts, all of these these translations. Go and check my numbers. Because when you do, it's amazing the evidence that we have. My question for people, I always ask this question. Would it be too difficult for God to preserve His Word? If God truly is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, the three omnis, if God is truly all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere, would it be too difficult for God to preserve his word? Absolutely not. Nothing is too hard for God. I fully believe that we have enough evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word. But we get to decide what we do with that evidence. You often heard it said, maybe in an that you could see Jesus on trial and pretend for a second that you are the one who gets to decide the verdict. You're the judge. What will you do with the evidence? What would you do if you were in Pilate's shoes? What will we do with the evidence that we have? Do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? Because if you do, the Bible tells us things that God expects of us. God expects us to hear His Word, to believe His Word. He expects us to compare our lives against His Word, James chapter 1. When we hold up the perfect law of liberty and we see our reflection, what do we see? Do we see a person who is living up to it? Who's not perfect, but trying our best? Or do we see someone who is lazy, who doesn't care? What do we see when we look into the law of liberty? God's word tells us that he expects us to be baptized, to be saved. God's word tells us that we are to be faithful unto death. Do we believe that the Bible is God's word? This morning we offer an invitation. An invitation that if you're here and you need to be buried in the waters of baptism, see here is water, what hinders you? An invitation that if we look at our lives and we recognize that there are things where we are falling short, there are things that we are struggling with, there are things that we are failing at, It's an invitation to repent, to ask God for forgiveness, and to be better. This morning, if you're here and you're subject to the invitation, will you let us know as we stand and as we sing this song?